Good morning. My name is Kristen Paleo. I'll be reading the scripture for this morning's sermon. It's found in the book of John, chapter 16. We're going to begin in the latter part of verse 4 and continue through verse 15. You can follow along on the screen. You can also find it in your pew Bible, page 848. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority... But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Well, today is Super Bowl Sunday, uh, one of America's most treasured holidays. And I don't know about you, but I love watching the Super Bowl. Even if my team, the Steelers, are not in the Super Bowl, which they've not been much recently, I still love watching the Super Bowl. And one of the reasons why I really enjoy watching the big game is because there are just these unbelievable plays that seem to happen every year. From David Tyree's helmet catch in 2008 to the Philly special in 2018 to the greatest play in Super Bowl history, Santonio Holmes from the Steelers catching in the back of the end zone on the tips of his toes the winning touchdown. There have just been some unbelievable plays in the Super Bowl. But whether or not you like watching the Super Bowl or even know any of those plays that I just referenced, I think we can all agree that the Bible is likewise full of unbelievable things. All throughout the scriptures, we are smacked in the face with things that are really hard to believe. And I think if we were to survey the room right now about things in the Bible that are really hard to believe, I'm sure we would hear things like, it's really hard to believe that God could create all things out of nothing. Or, it's really hard to believe that one man with no nautical knowledge could build a boat large enough for thousands of animals to live on for an extended period of time during a worldwide flood. Or, it's hard to believe that a man could raise himself from the dead. The list, I'm sure, could go on and on. And in our passage today, we see one of the hardest things for us to believe as Christians. 
In John 16, 7, Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Again, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. You could also understand Jesus to be saying, it's better for me to go. Do you believe him? If we're going to believe him, we're going to need his help. So let's pray for that. And uh, I didn't at the beginning dismiss uh, the kids age four through kindergarten. So if, if you are four through kindergarten, you can leave now. Uh, as well as if you're doing the sermon discussion in the ESL group, you can go now. I think everybody already left, but just wanted to get that out there. So let's pray for the Lord's help as we get started. Father, this is one of many things in the scriptures that we admit on the surface is hard to believe. And so we ask that your spirit come and minister among us and that by your power and only through your power can we trust you and learn from you and be changed by you. And so we ask that you would do what only you can do among us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as we've been doing for the past five weeks, we're going to take a look at some of the words of Jesus on his final evening with his disciples before he would die. And as Pastor Tim Keller said in a sermon on this passage, when you're about to die, you don't make small talk. Have you felt that over these past few weeks? There's like this urgency about Jesus' message. He's got limited time with them. But just as there's urgency in his message, it means that every single one of his words are super important. He's not making small talk. So with great care and urgency, he tells his disciples about the Holy Spirit. Specifically, he tells them that the Holy Spirit is the floodlight that shines on the sin of the world and the Savior of God's people. So as we study this passage together this morning, we're going to break it up into two chunks so that we can understand it. We'll look at the coming of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. So we'll look at the coming of the Spirit, and then we'll look at the work of the Spirit. First, we'll take a look at the coming of the Spirit. Look with me in your Bible at verses 4 through 6. We'll pick up again in the middle of verse 4. So this is Jesus speaking, and he says... I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So let's remember the context of the passage. In last week's sermon, Pastor Benjamin led us through the end of chapter 15 where, John, where Jesus tells his disciples that as they go about gospel ministry, the world will hate them just as it hated Jesus. And now here we see Jesus saying in the same conversation, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. What he's saying is that for three years, Jesus absorbed nearly all of the persecution on behalf of his disciples. To use Benjamin's image from last week, 
persecution can feel like a hostile desert. And for years, Jesus has been enduring the heat of the desert so that the disciples wouldn't have to. But now he's going away, so he's telling them how to endure the Sahara of persecution. And just for a second, put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Your friend, your rabbi, tells you that he's leaving and persecution is coming your way. So what's your response? For the disciples, their response was that sorrow had filled their heart, which is just so real. So naturally, we might ask, how did Jesus comfort his followers? Read verse 7 with me. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I've been on the giving and receiving end of poor comfort before. And it's hard to know how to respond to poor comfort. I would imagine if we could have a video of the disciples' response to this comment, there would be a lot of blank stares. And I wonder if just for a second, they thought that this might be poor comfort. Again, put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Your close friend, who you've given up everything for, has just told you that he is going to die and that persecution is coming your way. You're filled with sorrow. And then in response, he tells you, it's better that I go away. If you and I have a hard time believing that, it would have been next to impossible for the disciples to believe that. Yet this isn't poor comfort. In fact, in response to the disciples' sorrow that Jesus is going away, he doesn't offer cheap, empty platitudes, but a rock-solid promise of the coming of a helper. He says that it is to the disciples' advantage for him to go so the helper can come. So let's ask two questions. Who is the helper, and why is it better for Jesus to leave and the Spirit to come? So who's the helper? The first answer to the question of who the helper is is quite simple. You don't have to turn there with me, but Jesus actually answers this very question two chapters beforehand in John 14. He says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus says that the Helper is the Holy Spirit. The second answer to the question of who the Helper is, is answered in the way the question was asked. Who is the helper? Not what is the helper, but who? The helper, or the Holy Spirit, as we've said, is not an it, but a he. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force, but is a person. The great theologian of our day, Luke Skywalker, once said, the force is the energy between all things, attention, a balance that binds the universe together. And this, if, if we're not careful, starts to impact the way that we view the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not a power from a galaxy far, far away that we can harness to accomplish what we want. The Holy Spirit is not a genie in a bottle that we can rub when we want to make a wish. The Holy Spirit is, in fact, God, 
one of the three persons of the Trinity who has a will and wields sovereign power and glory to accomplish that which he intends. This is not Star Wars, nor is it Aladdin. This is our ever-glorious and wonderful Almighty God. A third answer that I'll mention to the question of who the Helper is, at the risk of pointing out what might be obvious, is that the Helper is a Helper. Other Bible versions translate this word for helper to also read counselor or mediator or intercessor or advocate. And later in the passage, we see the helper described as the spirit of truth. All of these would help us to understand the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one who comes alongside you to help, counsel, mediate, and advocate on your behalf. So just for the sake of clarity... The helper is the Holy Spirit, a person of the divine trinity who is identified as one who comes alongside to help and counsel. So that answers our first question about who the helper is. But we still need to answer the burning question. Why is it better for Jesus to leave and the helper to come? There are a few reasons, I think. The first reason why it's better for Jesus to leave and the Spirit to come is because when Jesus came to earth, he took on flesh. He took on a body. Which means in his body, he could only be one place at a time. He could be in Jerusalem or Galilee or Samaria, but he couldn't split his body uh, to be in each of those places at once. But when the Spirit would come, as the prophet Joel promised, God would pour out his spirit on all believers, everywhere. So that means that whether you're a believer in Jerusalem or Galilee or Samaria or Harrisburg, God himself, who is present everywhere by his spirit, is there with you. He doesn't need to put on sandals and travel to reach you. He doesn't need to fit you into his schedule. To make this really practical for us, although our feelings may and often do tell us otherwise, Loneliness will never be your reality. If you are a Christian, you are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. He is there with you while you eat with your family, and he is there with you while you eat in your apartment with no one else. God, by his Spirit, has bonded himself to you so that although you may not see anyone with you, you are never alone. And this leads us to the second answer to the question of why it is better for Jesus to leave and the Spirit to come. Remember the context. The disciples were just told that they were going to be entering a season, more accurately, a lifetime of persecution that would feel like a desert. And no longer would Jesus be with them there in the desert. Instead, Jesus is providing them with something of an oasis in the desert. He's giving them himself in greater measure in order to withstand the persecution that would come their way. And the kind of persecution that the disciples would face would require the power of the Spirit if they were going to remain faithful. So according to church tradition, all of the disciples, except for John, were killed for their faith, including Peter being crucified, James being killed by the sword, and so on. Even John who wasn't killed, uh, is said to have been boiled in oil and miraculously survived. 
This kind of persecution requires the ongoing power and never-leaving presence of the Spirit. You may read these verses and think, okay, but why does Jesus say that if he doesn't go away, the helper will not come? Like, can't we just have them both? That's a great question. Thanks for asking. I think this actually provides us with our third insight into the question of why it's better for Jesus to leave and the helper to come. The reason that the helper will not come unless Jesus leaves uh, is not because there's some kind of relational tension between the two of them. This isn't like you checking the guest list to that party to see if that one person is going, to see whether you're going to go or not. It's nothing like that. This isn't Jesus and the Holy Spirit not getting along. Instead, the reason that the Holy Spirit will not come until Jesus leaves is because so much of the Holy Spirit's job is applying the finished work of Jesus to the life of the believer. And so, until Jesus' work is finished, the Holy Spirit will not come. And I know that a lot of this could raise a bunch of questions related to the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And we can't and won't get into every detail of that. But suffice it to say that in the Old Testament, the primary role of the Holy Spirit uh, was that he interacted with people by coming upon them for a certain time for a certain task. You can think of when the Holy Spirit came upon Bezalel and Aholiab for the construction of the temple in Exodus 31 or the Spirit being upon Moses for the task of leading God's people in Numbers 11. One of the things that's new about the new covenant is rather than the Spirit coming upon people temporarily for specific tasks, there's a unique, permanent indwelling of the Spirit of the resurrected Christ that takes place in the life of the believer. So until the work of Christ is done, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension— Until that work is done, the Holy Spirit would not come. The Spirit would wait to be sent once and for all in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. So if you're like me, and you've been prone to at times say things like, if only I had been there and seen Jesus, it would be so much easier to believe. Or, if only Jesus could be here right now, things would be so much better. This passage answers emphatically that if we say these things, we're wrong. How do I know? Because Jesus is talking to people who were there. And even to them, he's saying, it is to your advantage that I go. If you need proof of why this is, just take a look at the disciples before the Spirit comes at Pentecost and then after. In the Gospels, before receiving the Holy Spirit, the disciples are a bunch of bumbling fools. They're constantly arguing, constantly doubting, getting things wrong all the time, lacking faith. But after receiving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the disciples are a force for the kingdom of God. They're preaching boldly in the face of persecution. They experience supernatural unity. They see people saved and cared for. How is this possible? Because it was to their advantage that Jesus go so that the helper could come. Unless Jesus leaves and the Spirit comes, they and we cannot be changed. Let me put it to you baldly. 
If you were able to hop into the DeLorean with Doc and Marty McFly from Back to the Future, and somehow you find yourself back in the time of Jesus' ministry, if you saw with your own eyes not only the feeding of the 5,000 and the raising of Lazarus from the dead, but also if you witnessed with your own eyes the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it would not be as spiritually transforming an experience as right now, today, if you receive the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you are indwelt by the very Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of the resurrected Christ. And that is something that until Pentecost, followers of Jesus and the people of God could only dream about. So if you remember, at the beginning of the sermon, I said that we were going to break the passage up into two chunks. We just saw Jesus talk about the coming of the Spirit. Now we're going to turn our attention to the work of the Spirit. And I just want to preface this by saying that this passage doesn't tell us everything there is to say about the Holy Spirit. It doesn't talk about the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't talk about spiritual gifts. It doesn't talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So there's definitely more that could be said about the Spirit. And so if you've got burning questions about the Spirit, that's awesome, and we would love to talk to you about those. But we have to hone in on what this passage says about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus here mentions two groups of people that the Spirit will interact with, the world and the followers of Jesus. So whether you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus or if you're just checking out Christianity— There is something here for everyone. Just like with our first point about the coming of the Spirit, we're going to look at the work of the Spirit through the lens of two questions. We'll ask, how does the Spirit interact with the world? And how does the Spirit interact with followers of Jesus? First, we'll look at the question, how does the Spirit interact with the world? To do this, take a look with me at verses 8 through 11. And as we do that, let's just keep in mind what we said about the world last week. The word world can mean lots of things. But the way that Jesus is using it here, and many times throughout John's gospel, is in terms of those in opposition to God. Those in opposition to Jesus. So let's keep that in mind as we read these verses and unpack the question of how the Spirit interacts with the world. Starting in verse 8. And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. An image that's going to be helpful for us as we look at the work of the Holy Spirit, is to see the Holy Spirit as a floodlight. And when the floodlight of the Holy Spirit shines on something, it exposes something in order to convince someone of what is true. That's primarily what's meant by the word convict here. The Spirit of truth exposes in order to convince someone of what is true. And the word conviction can sound very negative, but the kind of conviction that comes from the Spirit of God doesn't have condemnation as its aim, but rather it has repentance and a call to salvation as its aim. 
One pastor helpfully said that these verses show us the Spirit shining a floodlight for the world upon the greatest wrong, the greatest right, and the greatest victory. I'll explain. What's the greatest wrong? Look at verse 9. The Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in Jesus. The world has plenty of ideas about what the greatest wrongs are, and we can too. The great wrong, the great sin, is not related to sexuality, adultery, abuse, murder, racism, or many of the other things that are legitimately serious sins and break the heart of God. The great sin in the eyes of God is unbelief. And that is the great wrong that the Spirit shines a light on for the world. He exposes the unbelief of the world in order to convince them that there is something that they need to believe in, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. What about the greatest right? Look at verse 10 again. The Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, just as the world has its own ideas about what the greatest evils are, the world has its own ideas about what the greatest goods or rights are. Today, individuality, freedom of choice, authenticity, and affirmation are among the world's most celebrated virtues. And regardless of how you feel about those things, this verse is saying that the Spirit is shining a light on what true righteousness is. And whatever true righteousness is has something to do with the fact that Jesus is going to the Father where we will see him no longer. What this is saying is that the resurrection... An ascension of Jesus into heaven is the proof that the way Jesus lived is the very mark by which we should judge all righteousness. It isn't going with the current of the cultural moral tide. It's judging righteousness by the unchanging character of God as we see it lived out in the life of Jesus. Where the cross was once the world's exhibit A of the unrighteousness of Jesus— The resurrection and ascension flip the script and prove that Jesus is actually the model of righteousness. Finally, what's the greatest victory? Look at verse 11. The Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. In the death of Christ on the cross, All evidence seemed to point to Satan, the ruler of this world, claiming the victory once and for all. But three days later, when Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrection proved that despite all appearances to the contrary, the cross was not the victory of Satan, but was, in fact, his death blow. The cross and resurrection of Christ together mark the great victory of Jesus over Satan, sin, and death, where the great enemy has been judged and will one day be done away with in full. And this is what the Spirit shines a floodlight on so that the world can see and be convinced that the victory of the crucifixion is that it is a coronation ceremony, not for the ruler of this world, but for the king of the universe. So in summary, 
the way that the Spirit interacts with the world is that he shines a floodlight on the greatest wrong, the greatest right, and the greatest victory in order to convince them of what is true and call them to repentance. If that's what he does for the world, what does the Spirit shine a floodlight on for Jesus' followers? Well, he shines a floodlight on Jesus himself. Look with me at verses 12 to 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus assures his disciples here that even though he's going away, he will not stop teaching them. Now, when Jesus says that the spirit of truth will guide you into all the truth, what does that mean? Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that because followers of Jesus have the Spirit that we automatically know everything. This verse isn't promising that because we have the Spirit, we should be able to know the name of our future spouse, what we should be when we grow up, or whether the Chiefs or the Niners are going to win tonight. All truth doesn't mean that he will tell us every fact about everything. So what does it mean? Well, remember that Jesus is primarily speaking to the 11 disciples here who go on to become his apostles. When Jesus says that the spirit of truth will guide you into all the truth, he means that as a part of the spirit's work of shining a light on Jesus, the spirit of truth will give them supernatural insight to interpret what Jesus is about to do in his death and resurrection. This is how and why we have our New Testament. The work of the Spirit here is to continue speaking the words of Jesus. And in doing so, this shines a floodlight on Jesus. And as verse 14 says, brings Jesus glory. But although Jesus is primarily speaking to the eleven, he isn't only speaking to them. We learn in the very next chapter of John, as Jesus is praying, that you and I are also on his mind this night. So how does this apply to us as Christians today? I think it does in a number of ways. First, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are indwelt by the promised Holy Spirit. Joel chapter 2, which we mentioned earlier, was fulfilled at Pentecost in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit was poured out on all kinds of people. All of God's people now have his Spirit in full. You don't have to wonder if God will draw near to you. He has. Christian, you have Emmanuel in your bones. Next, a primary way that the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth is that we have received the scriptures handed down to us all the way from these very men who sat around a table with Jesus eating bread and drinking wine while celebrating Passover. The Spirit empowered them to write down what they had learned. This means that as helpful as it can be to have red-letter Bibles to see the words of Christ, 
In reality, the whole Bible is red letters because all 66 books are the words of Christ given by his spirit to his people. And the spirit's work in guiding us into all truth doesn't end with the writing of the scriptures. The spirit has empowered faithful men and women over the centuries to preserve the scriptures, translate the scriptures, and teach the scriptures so that by the grace of God, you and I could bask in the glory and wonder of the spirit of truth ministering to our hearts through the word even today. Finally, the role of the Holy Spirit is for us today, just as much as it was for the disciples, to shine a floodlight on Jesus. So super practically, when you think about Jesus, it's the Spirit at work in you. Anytime you remember a scripture, it's the Spirit at work in you. Anytime you remember to pray, it's the Spirit at work in you. Anytime you feel a tug in your heart to encourage someone in the gospel, it's the Spirit at work in you. Anytime you obey the scriptures, it's the Spirit at work in you. So, for example, if you are a Christian— and over the last few weeks, you've heard us announce baptisms on Easter Sunday, and you haven't been baptized, maybe you felt this tug in your conscience like, oh, I know Jesus commands us to be baptized, and I haven't, and I don't know, I'm scared to get up in front of people and talk and give my testimony, but I feel like I'm supposed to be baptized. It's most likely the Spirit at work in your heart prompting you to follow Jesus in obedience through baptism. All that to say, I have talked to a lot of people that get so anxious and worried that the Spirit is not at work in their life. And I want you to be encouraged. Any even minuscule desire you have for Christian growth is in itself a work of the Spirit. You wondering if the Spirit is at work in your life is evidence that He is. If the Spirit weren't at work in your life, you wouldn't care we would be utterly lost without the Spirit. And on our own, we could not even want God apart from the power of the Spirit. Christian, take heart. The Spirit is at work in your life. It is to your advantage that the Spirit has come. Well, where do we go from here? I mentioned earlier that because this passage talks about the way the Spirit interacts with the world and with followers of Jesus, there's something here for everyone today. I firmly believe that. The work of the Spirit for the Christian and for the non-Christian is to shine a floodlight on the truth. Most especially, the Spirit causes us to see the person and work of Jesus Christ. So here's the encouragement to everyone here this morning. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. The good news of Jesus is that those who put their faith in him will never be alone because the spirit of truth will always be within you ministering to your heart. As we turn from the greatest wrong of unbelief, we see the greatest victory of Christ's cross and resurrection where what appeared to be his defeat was actually his coronation as king of the universe. And now he sits down at the right hand of God, his work finished, giving his spirit to his people without measure so that we may see him clearly, look on him in his glory, and rest assured beyond a shadow of a doubt that one day we will be with him forever, enjoying his power and his presence in full. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for sending your spirit. Thank you for not leaving us alone, but drawing ever more close to us through your spirit. So I pray by your spirit, in your power, that you would continue to change us more and more into the likeness of Jesus as we gaze upon him. And that together as a body, we might be able to encourage one another in that. Walk alongside each other and grow towards Christ's likeness, knowing that one day, as we experience unity with you now, we will see you face to face. Thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.